It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, Game Boy Color games were available for purchase before the system was released. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. Ragnar. And I'm Chris. Thanks for joining us today. Ragnar has been a guest on a variety of episodes, including Rules of the Game, M, and A Quiet Place. There were too many to list here, so I'm cutting it down. Chris has also been on quite a few episodes, including Spaceballs, Halloween, and The Spirit of the Beehive, a recent one. Ragnar and Chris still conveniently like movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In the first round, each question will be worth one point, and in the second round, each question will be worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Today we're finishing our Halloween block by going back to 1977 in Japan. Space Iron Man Kyodan ends on MBS, Mount Usu erupts, and during all of this, Nobuhiko Obayashi's movie House was released. Other big movies in Japan in 1977 include The Yellow Handkerchief, The Life of Shukuzan, and Legend of Dinosaur and Monster Birds. Why don't we do that one? (laughs) (laughs) What's it about, Tom? All right, House. Well, this 87-minute incomprehensible merriment of murderous cats, pratfalls, and overly saturated colors follows four or five or six or seven indistinguishable high school-age Japanese girls as they travel to one of the girls' aunt's house, um, at which point the movie becomes a horror movie, a Keystone Cop feature, a meta-silent film, Great Expectations, sprinkled in with Kung Fu, a coming-of-age comedy complemented with a tremendous amount of cat-throwing, and now and then it just straight-up turns into the Beatles' magical mystery tour. Nothing makes any sense, but since marijuana has been decriminalized, who cares? Nick, if you had one word to describe this overdrive of a masterpiece, what would it be? Why? Chris? Technicolor vomit. Ragnar? Meow. And my word would be maximum. It's time for question one. What looks like cotton candy? Locked, Locked in. in. Locked in. All right. I'm sorry, Nick, but you have to go first. So what looks like cotton candy? It's a trick question. The cotton candy looks like cotton candy. All right. Ragnar, you locked in second. What do you have? I have the atomic bomb mushroom cloud. Chris, you locked in last. What do you have? Definitely the uh, the photograph of the atomic bomb mushroom cloud. All right. Very good. And the points go to Chris and Ragnar. Not shocking. <laughs> no, it wasn't. There is actually no cotton candy in this feature, probably. Um, but I brought up this question to start because... Uh, something Obayashi said in an interview, if you, if anybody has the Criterion edition of this, they have a, like a 40 minute interview with him, um, which is really interesting. You get kind of into a bit of the politics of, uh, of Toto and, and, and Japanese filmmaking. But uh, he said that he lost as a child all of his friends to the bomb and he wanted to make a movie about that. And he saw this movie as being about that in some fundamental way. And I wanted to bring up that comment and see what you guys thought of it. I, 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 even though I wasn't a huge fan of this movie, I did appreciate what it was and I appreciated the, the, what the, what he was trying to do. And I did a little research and a couple of people actually led me to something that I didn't really think of. My first viewing was that the cat itself was a, a physical representation mm-hmm. of the bomb. Uh, and that it was like him getting over the pain and suffering that had happened. And they had mentioned that a lot of Japanese films in this era kind of had that motif that these were filmmakers of the 70s in Japan were probably kids in the 40s when the bomb fell and that that traumatized that traumatizing event kind of led to this weird 
influx of art. And I, I, I definitely saw the movie through a different, uh, different lens when I, when I read that or saw that or whatever, whatever research I was doing. Uh, so that's why I actually knew it. And the fact that Mac was just always obsessed with food was, was one of the more hilarious things to me, I thought. So I, I don't know. I, I, it was an interesting, I, I, after watching that, after watching that little YouTube clip or whatever it was, I still didn't feel as if I missed that. I just feel as if it was something that he said in an interview. I don't know that it came across necessarily in the film standing by itself, but it was an interesting kind of idea, like looking back at it from his perspective, what he meant when he was shooting this kind of weirdness. Right over my head. I, I swear, I think I need a history lesson before some of these foreign films because we had this uh, recently happen. Tom, what was the one we saw with you had to have the whole Spanish history? The spirit of the beehive. Yes. The, the yes. Franco film. Uh, I, I was just going to say, um, the 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 bomb is an uh, or the bombs were so monumental for Japanese culture that it it does impact every movie and you have to know about it for every movie uh, pretty much afterwards. It's kind of like uh, September 11th for us. I don't know everybody's age, um, but so right now there are kids uh, in the United States that were not alive for September 11th and their high school age and or so forth similar age to these people and they don't know the impact of that day for those of us that experienced it so i think that is important to keep in mind because when they were doing that flashback which was incredible uh how they did it kind of like a film reel and the girls were narrating over it they kind of laughed it off you know they literally called the mushroom cloud a, a cotton candy you know these are events that destroyed entire cities and families and friends and loved ones and so in a way i think the aunt or the cat i don't really know the connection of the cat being what but i think that was hurtful to the spirit who lost uh, a lot in that bomb so it's kind of like uh, a kid that doesn't know any better making jokes and you know laughing about september 11th for us um, might not, not might not be funny, and we might take offense to that. So I think that's the importance of that flashback more so than exposition, but setting up the the spirit's anger towards these girls. I definitely need to start watching primers though before. Like I know the history of the war, but I didn't know that that was being influenced in this wacky movie, <laughs> like to this degree. I, I just I just assume that it's the, the influence for every movie. I mean, it's it's a monumental thing and. It's in so much of Japanese movies of that era. So it's just assume it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's also what, when he, they're talking about um, the children are narrating the story and they talk about cotton candy um, as, a, as a description of, of the mushroom cloud, eventually the movie just deteriorates. It itself kind of explodes. The past sort of melts away. Um, and I think that, that that destruction of the film overlapped with the mushroom cloud, overlapped with the story of the ant, overlapped with the children's kind of callousness is really like that. I think you're absolutely right, Ragnar. That's like, if you want to call it, it angers the spirit, or at least it sets the stage for what we're going to see and why we're seeing it, I think. It's time for question two. How many years has it been since Gorgeous's mother died? Locked in. Locked in. Is this Price's Right rules? Uh, whoops, sorry. Um, it is not Price's Right rules. Please oh, say the <laughs> say the correct answer. <laughs> All right. So who locked in first? Uh, Ragnar did. Then Nick. Then Chris. Okay. So let's start with Chris. What do you have? I think I vaguely remember them saying eight years. I thought it was six years. You know, those are the two numbers that I am debating but i wrote down six so i'll go with six and the winner is chris oh it was eight years (laughs) so close oh yes okay so (laughs) very good um i wanted to bring this up because i also think you know the other the other setting at the beginning here and by setting i mean kind of like thematic setting uh we have the the bomb and that kind of 
the historical trauma and then we have the story of the girl and this weird kind of Electra complex going on with her and her dad um, and the kind of anger that she's taking from this kind of personal and childish encounter, um, if we want to call it that, into the house. I was wondering what people thought of this, this setup at the beginning. Couldn't even get into that because I was so focused on his weird, like, spirit, like, like frolicking in the wind girlfriend or something that he was going to go on vacation with. Like I thought she was going to be part of it because she was kind of ethereal. <laughs> it kind of distracted from that relationship. I kind of, I kind of took from it that she was like the embodiment of Western culture. If that okay. makes any sense. I, I don't know. I don't know. I just that, you know, things were, were super traditional. And then after the war was over, I think there was kind of an invasion of Western culture to Japan mm-hmm. and like, I don't know that this was this like I said that this doesn't play in the movie for me, but it kind of felt like you know he met her while he was not in Japan. He brought her back to Japan. Now it was basically going to upend this girl Gorgeous's life, you know, just out of the blue, like out of nowhere. And it, like tipping off what Ragnar said about how you know the the movie is about like generational gap, and it's almost like this is another generational gap of the generation before that was very traditional versus the generation that was embracing the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I, that, that's what I got from it. I don't know if that's right. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not an expert at this, but that's kind of what I took from it mm-hmm. and why she had such a, I don't want to say hatred, but I think hatred for, for her, because it's mm-hmm. not traditional. It's not what she remembered. I never realized Chris was so deep. I mean, he, this, this sounds legit. I, I could buy into that. The, the beginning of this movie uh, reminds me of a lot of David Lynch, or I actually should mm-hmm. be the other way around. David Lynch reminds me a lot of this movie, and in specific, uh, Mulholland Drive, where uh, very briefly, but a character comes to California, Hollywood, and has high expectations, so everything is very colorful. Uh, the acting is over-the-top, syrupy sweet, and I think uh, that comes directly pretty much from the beginning of this movie, in particular, this scene where she goes home, her house, uh, Tom is what you were talking about, and she meets her father. They're in this balcony thing. The sky is beautiful, and it's just oversaturated just to show from her Amazing fake backgrounds. You know. Exactly. <laughs> on purpose to give yeah. us that feeling of syrupy sweetness, happiness, joy, over-the-topness, and then this... Uh, I don't know, ring race like figure, you know, comes in with the flowing uh, dress and all that stuff. And then that's when things start turning bad. That's when the mood starts turning. That's when the film starts slowly getting darker and darker. So I think it's just, I, I can't I read anything deeper into it. I'm sure there is, uh, but from my level, I just saw like him setting up this like sweet home, this sweet beginning for the to juxtapose next to the terror that's gonna uh, happen pretty soon. I know I'm taking us on a full tangent here, but we were talking about fake backgrounds. One of the things I really did enjoy about this film was there was a fake background when they were getting off the bus and they're in this open scene. And then there's a fake background of the open scene that's still there, even on the wide shot. And then they do it, but they were on an yes, open, yes, like an open. Field. Yes. Yes. It was just waiting for them there. This, this rectangle poster border. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's ultimate film. That's what this is absolutely. I did like that. That was ridiculous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just want to jump in real quick and say that uh, Japanese films, uh, especially in that era, especially when there's like color and everything, they did a lot of fake backgrounds. Um, Not all of them um, kind of pushed the limit like this one did, uh, but there's a lot of movies that play with the background quite a bit. quite there's one that i forgot but i'll I'll remember the movie but it is a thing in japanese cinema of the time using the fake backgrounds on purpose even with the wide shots (laughs) even with the wide shots yeah Mm -hmm. i just think that was a that was also a technique of the 70s because it was cheaper you could shoot a lot of your movie on a studio back lot and make it seem grandiose if you had a good painter that could do a matte painting for the background I just, uh, I just love that they had the background and they still needed the painting of the background. Oh, and I remember vividly that scene you're talking about because <laughs> it was wild. They got off the bus and there you could tell there's a painted background behind There's them. a rectangle. And then, they take, then they take another wider shot and you find out that that painted background is like a billboard <laughs> that's stopping in front of the bus. It was, it was 
wild. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think the, yeah, I found like the, the, it's like maximum falseness, right? You're always attuned to the fact that you're watching a movie. Um, and, and it's odd because he, he worked on this on kind of the Toto lots, the, the major production studio in, in Japan at going back to the thirties. And I still, still think so today. Uh, and they had access to better effects and by better, I mean more polished, right? Better kind of, things like that and he chose to improvise effects on the set right to come up with how he was going to do things there um not having the polish having it a little more rickety and and things like that um he actually at one point uh he was talking about um kurosawa and he was like whenever i needed to pick a angle to shoot from i thought what would piss off Kurosawa the most? And that's the angle I went with. So a, a <laughs> lot of, yeah, a lot of this is, because also at this time in the 70s, um, they were making like strict realism. There was a real realistic, you know, even if they had the background, there was this kind of fetish for the better films being realistic. And they stopped making money. This actually happened in like the late 60s in America where they were making musicals and they just stopped making money. And and so that's one of the reasons why this got greenlit because they're like, we've made a lot of comprehensible movies that haven't made any money. We're going to let you make this incomprehensible one. At the end of round one, we have Chris in the lead with two points, Ragnar right behind with one point, and Nick with zero points. Stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about another of my favorite podcasts called Spooky Speaking Spodcast. In Spooky Speaking Spodcast, the crew rates every screen in every movie with a focus on horror movies. Here's a quick sample. Ah! Talk about this scream is that it's a very repetitive scream and it can be used in multiple situations. In fact, I feel like I've heard this in almost every movie I've ever seen. It's a classic. It's a classic. Can't get away from the classics. It's 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 just a classic. Ah! And we're back. Ragnar and Chris, we're at the critical point of our episode where we ask the guests a key question. Individually, of course. Uh, same question. So to the both of you. If you could watch House with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be, and why? It's funny. It's funny that Tom brought up uh, that this director wanted to do anything that Kurosawa would hate, because that's exactly who I picked that I would want to watch this with. Nice. <laughs> I just figured he would get a kick out of it and/or hate it completely, and it would just be funny to watch his reaction to the mayhem that goes on on screen and how it's just—it's incredible. <laughs> He was, Kurosawa was alive, you know, he, he's enjoying this. He's still, you know, he's still making movies. He, he might have seen it. Well, he's not Did alive they, now, and that's yeah, who I want to have my, yeah. my, 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 my watch my movie with. I would pick uh, anyone who has not been to Japan that wants to go to Japan. That's who I want to see this movie with, because this is more representative. Uh, just for the audience that don't know, KJ and I met in Japan. We lived in Japan for many years. Uh, this movie feels like Japan more than any other Japanese movie I've seen. I mean, it, it's the culture, the weirdness, the hodgepodge of ideas that don't really go together, but they just throw it together and make it work somehow. That's uh, my experience in Japan. Uh, there wasn't a piano eating people, but besides that, uh, it's pretty spot on. Now, are you watching with all these people in a giant auditorium, of course, with safe distance? <laughs> Or is of this course, at one at a time? I mean, that could take a while. I don't know if you, can you watch it that many more times? <laughs> I, I, I'll i watch it one at a time and then turn to them and be like, you still want to go? You still want to go? Are you sure? And we'll see who, who has the, the guts to, to go through with the, their trip. It's time for question three. How does the house first attack the girls? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. So, Ragnar, you locked in last, so what do you have? If I remember correctly, the very first attack was uh, a chandelier attack with its little chandelier crystal. All right, so the first thing that came to mind was the chandelier, but that's not the first time that something weird happens. The cat's eyes blink and the girl's camera pops out of her hand. 
So I'm I'm assuming that the cat is you is the same as the house. So I'm going to go with the camera coming out of their hand. Okay, I misheard this one because I thought it was the first actual like death. So I was saying Mac attack because that's the first one of them that bites the dust. This is interesting. So I had dropping the the chandelier shards, which uh, kung fu. I it is interesting. The camera thing does occur before that. Um, would we consider that attacking the house, the, the house attacking the girls? Um, because the camera seems to be, it's the same camera shot that we see in the, the meta silent film um, that goes off with the, the nuke. Uh, and so there's a kind of reference there. I don't know if it's, that's a, an attack or like a defensive move. I um, think it was self-defense because if I remember correctly, the spirit can't be seen in mirrors is that i believe like there was something with where they saw the spirit mm. so maybe yeah, she was trying to protect herself by not being shown to be not there i don't know something like that i think i took it as she didn't want to get her picture taken because it might not show the ant might not show up or mm -hmm. the cat might not show up i'm not sure whoever mm. the yeah who's representing the house at that point mm -hmm. yeah so the question ends up being do we consider that an attack on the girls that's an attack on the camera i don't yeah. know <laughs> i i'm sorry i'm gonna i think i'm gonna say no man uh, sorry i appreciate I'm, I'm, the effort i'm i'm in protest mm -hmm. asterisk <laughs> on this question please it also allows for a score change which makes our episodes much more interesting our focus yes. group said yeah yeah i think you're right though the shard is actually like an attack where the other one yeah. was more of a yeah. defensive maneuver but mm -hmm. i forgot them both well not forgot i just <laughs> I thought the question was something different. I thought it was which girl got physically attacked first. And mm -hmm. that's why I went with Mac. Mm -hmm. Headless Mac. Headless Mac. That was terrible. Or just head. <laughs> Bodyless Mac, yeah. So, of course, I brought this up to bring up a general and probably obvious question. The house, what it does, its nature, what we thought of that, all of the above. So let's start with comments about the the grand set piece of this film i think some of the like static stuff in the house is some of my favorite parts of it like i i think that if i forget everything about this film i hope that i remember when i'm 80 this the dancing skeleton mm -hmm. and just the fact like that that thing is going to stick with me forever it was my favorite part and every time it was on the screen i just wanted to see it like start to dance again and it uh it's poorly I, that, done too but it is so poorly done but that's exactly the kitschiness of it i love i loved it yeah. i loved that that was uh, that it scared the kids so much and it was just a plastic skeleton <laughs> uh so I mean, like, I, although I do believe the camera was definitely the first time the kids were attacked, I'm just I'm still uh, mm -hmm. trying to make sure I lobby for myself here. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think it's kind of funny how uh, like how ridiculous the the deaths were, like the piano that Ragnar mm -hmm. mentioned before, and the the floating head that comes out of the well that then bites the other girl on the butt was just <laughs> another amazing piece of cinematic mm -hmm. history that I hope I never forget. Mm -hmm. uh, just overall over the top. I thought she was going to turn into like a zombie or like, like become a spirit. No, no nothing it, like that. It felt very much like evil dead at that moment. And I actually yeah. had to go back and look to see which one came out first. And it was, <laughs> this one came out first. I wouldn't be surprised if you, if you got an interview with Sam Raimi and he said that there were parts of this, that he saw that influenced some of his evil dead take, mm -hmm. especially evil dead too, when it got a little bit more campy. Yeah. It, it's, it's a lot of fun. The, the piano scene is the, probably the most famous and probably the most um, impressive of them. And what I think what makes it so, so interesting is the, uh, the fact that so much of the violence is addressed with humor on the part of the girls. Like, you know, when, um, when Melody gets her fingers electrocuted off, she gets eaten later, but I think they get electrocuted off. She just sort of holds up her hands without any fingers and goes, I've lost my fingers. And no, and they so got bitten off. They got bit bitten off. off. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then they, they, you know, and then she kind of laughs it off until the piano eats her hand and then eats her. And even when it eats her, her, her head is like floating around. Very weird. And she looks at her legs as they're, as they're kicking and she's like, but they're always in naughty. like a different location. Yeah. And mm -hmm. like, it's, it's very yeah. weird. That, that was, although I did like when her fingers were playing. Mm -hmm the piano when they were all uh, just kind of floating there? I, I think once the house starts to kick in and become a character, um, 
this is where all my analysis and deeper meanings and all that just fly out the window because I can't make heads or tails of it. I just know that it, it looks like a, uh, a, like I said, a kaleidoscope of wild ideas. Um, and I think the director had input from his 10 year old daughter. Um, and she came up with a lot of the, uh, <laughs> it's a writer credit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it shows, and it's just a wild ride of imagination. It's like, sometimes I felt I was in that uh, Willy Wonka tunnel when mm. it's all dark. What if you step off in that mm. tunnel? That's, this is where you go. You know, mm. it's wild, crazy world. So it was just, I think it was just ideas that were just pouring out of him and he just put everything in there. I did notice that all of the all of like all of these shots were like that he held on to them for a long time. Like it wasn't like today's horror where it's like a you get a brief glimpse and then it, the, the camera pans to something else and it's a hot cut. Like he was focused on that piano scene for what seemed like forever. And Not I think that the, I think I think it's a little bit on purpose, just like because it made me a little uneasy there for a little while. It's like this is this crazy thing, and she's holding her hands up, and you're literally going to stare at them for like three beats or four beats <laughs> before we we even make any mention of the fact that it's happening. And it just it it was a really really odd pacing, and I think that probably in his head for whatever reason it was probably intentional. I couldn't exactly tell you what his purpose was, but it seemed like it wasn't just the piano scene where everything kind of lingered a little longer than it probably would have in in other movies that have seen and i think that that was probably by design but beats me what, what he meant by it you know what really saved this movie kung fu solving everything by kicking or karate chopping things yeah so uh that that yes. saved it for i don't know why every time she came on screen i was very happy about some ridiculous <laughs> thing she was about to do even when her legs were torn off uh, she, she was still fighting. Still, yeah, still fighting. Kick, right? <laughs> into the cat. Yeah. Yeah. Into the cat. And she had <laughs> some of the most badass music. Like her, her little, her little like piece of the score was was probably the best yeah. one. Yeah. The rest yeah, of the score, sure. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's very like it, like the old films of George Malays. If you you've seen those, um, where it's just like here's more fantasy stuff because I can. This is like the limits of what I can throw in there. Um, and you know we'll we'll knock the eye out of the man in the moon. Why you know why not? It has that kind of uh, kind of spirit. It's it's sort of like I think Malays probably wouldn't even consider himself a filmmaker back then. He would be like an illusionist, and that kind of was the feeling here. It was like this is maximum filmmaking to such a degree that it's more like an illusionist or or, or like a, a kind of a sideshow demonstration. Um, but it's just filled, filled, filled with this kind of energy and this stuff and this like love of the medium itself. That's what I felt with the whole thing was like, the house was an opportunity to make, you know, cinema qua cinema, right? It's just filmmaking distilled. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Like this, it does feel like a love letter to cinema. Yeah. Um, because, Again, I'm not too familiar with the director's other work. I've never seen anything by him other than this. I suspect it was probably his first film, um, um, or at least first, first major studio. Yeah, first yeah. feature film, first mm -hmm. major studio with a budget, not, not, not including any like, you know, college or student films or whatever. Or I thought it was a student film. <laughs> <laughs> but like, he, he, has so, he has so many ideas from start to end. From the very first thing where it says uh, this is a movie or a, a movie or something like along that those lines to the very end he has all these ideas from years of loving the cinema of loving the medium and he just poured it all out like it was his one shot to get all his ideas out and and it's amazing it's it's interesting you know what he did for he so he made a few silent films and he made one called emotion which actually like kind of toured the college circuit and got a little noise um he went into advertising and he spent 10 years between that movie, which was I think 66 or 67, and this filming commercials, hundreds wow. and hundreds of commercials. Wow. Uh, and which was looked down upon by all his friends. They thought, well, this isn't art. You're just making commercials. But um, he worked with people like Kurt Douglas and he's like really big, yeah, because they would come over like today, they would go over to Japan to do a commercial 
to remain respectable. You know, nobody in America knew about it. Um, uh, so you could see like him like directing these famous actors, but it, these like commercials, I've looked at a few of them have this style. And so it's clearly like you have a commercial, you have like two days to make it and you want to, and you have a budget because film didn't have a lot of budget, but Japan was going through a boom in the sixties. So advertising had a lot of money. And so he could just have this like festival of short films that just had this like product float out at the end or something like that. Um, so all of these skills are kind of honed in the commercial world. That's where a lot of this comes from. Wow. Interesting. It's time for question four. What scene occurs at 43 minutes and 45 seconds into the picture? That is exactly the halfway point. Briefly describe it. And by briefly describe it, I mean, you know, make it clear you know what scene it is. You had to clarify that for me because I had an answer, but now I, now I don't think it's going to work. Locked in. Locked in. So Ragnar, Nick, did you lock in? I have just locked in at this very moment. Oh, okay, very good. Uh, which means you're going first, buddy. What do you got? I specifically remember that scene. It, it, it will probably stay with me throughout the rest of my life. They were lowering a very round, almost perfect sphere watermelon into a well. All right. Ragnar, you're up next. So uh, at the exact halfway point of the film, uh, I'm shooting from half court here. Uh, it's when they meet uh, the watermelon vendor and he points the way to uh, the house. There's like a watermelon theme here so far. Yes, this is a watermelon answer. Chris, what do you have? I think... So I I'm I'm a I'm 100 guessing. I have no idea whatsoever because this is a so very very, <laughs> very this is a very specific question that I was not ready ready to answer. Uh, I think the watermelon stuff and the watermelon main were were the first half though. I I so I picked something in the middle that I thought was kind of kind of weird. Uh, I think when she goes upstairs to the mirror and is painting her lips, that just feels like it's when the movie turned and maybe why you're asking this question. So that's what I'm going with. I'm going to say it's like her dressing up like her auntie and seeing it in the mirror. I, I, I don't know. Come on, watermelon the well. Come on, watermelon and the well. And Chris wins the episode. Oh! No. Holy crap. And the last... I thought that was later. Oh, man. That's the halfway point. At exactly Trust the halfway point, that scene starts. Uh, Trust me, Nick. Yeah. It felt like it was longer than that. <laughs> Uh, there, there you go, Ragnar. That was my first dig at the movie. All right. <laughs> my my first answer before Tom clarified, I was going to just say Mac was eating. <laughs> <laughs> no, not anymore at that point. Or maybe in the afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So I brought up the scene because I think, Chris, you, you described it actually pretty well, the tonal shift, that something seems to like really change at that point. And these characters aren't developed right their their names are their only attribute <laughs> kung fu gorgeous, gorgeous. melody well, yeah melody kung plays fu. instruments kung fu does kung fu sweet has a crush on her teacher because he's so manly um but gorgeous is the character that i think if we're going to say there's maybe depth is the wrong word but maybe we could say a lot of surface that we could say that about um and i think this is the scene that's sort of as le uh, along with the scene at the beginning with her with her father that allows that surface to kind of spread out and begin to kind of interact with the past and whatnot. And I was wondering what people thought of that, that character gorgeous and how she relates to the ghosts and what have you in the house. It's, it's like the moment where she goes from being the young innocent bystander girl that goes to the house and she actually becomes one with the house. Mm -hmm. Like she actually like right after that scene is where she goes downstairs and they're fake calling the police. And mm -hmm. I think uh, like they, she picks up the receiver and you hear like voices mm -hmm. as if somebody else is trying to say, help us get us out. Like somebody else has been affected by this house mm -hmm. and she just hangs it up saying that it's broken. And then mm -hmm. she's the one, she's the one that then starts terrorizing the other girls that are still around. And even though Mac died before and it was somebody else that did it, now it's gorgeous that has kind of taken on the mantle. And even in the last scene, she touches the hands with uh, 
with uh, what was her name Roaku or something I was that was the the soon to be mother's name oh like yeah. she becomes the attacker of her mm-hmm. like she be- she has now taken on the mantle of the white haired ant which I don't know that we see very much after that transitional scene like I feel like the spirit the white haired mother white haired ant be- like embodies the girl gorgeous or is the girl gorgeous I'm not sure what the the symbolism is there but I don't remember seeing the white haired ant after that I think it's just the embodiment of the house, right? And the house in physical form took her took her place. I don't know. Cuz this the aunt is dead, really. She's been dead for I think that's what they were saying. She's been she's right but her dead. spirit was like controlling the house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now it, she's controlling the house, I think. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's a Mrs. Haversham character, the aunt. She's the she's very much like that the great expectations character um who uh doesn't get married um and lives all alone in her wedding dress and tries to make young people fall in love and break their hearts because she wants revenge kind of on everyone for her her husband uh leaving her on her wedding day um there's something like that going on here but it's also it's also intergenerational Right. And I think that kind of speaks to the, this kind of problem that um, that Gorgeous is having with their father. And then the problem that the the spirit of the film is having with the behavior of the girls, um, as much as the film is also celebrating that behavior. Uh, and the last time I think you see the ant is in that scene. You see her in the mirror. Right? You see her kind of taking on the also like a vampire. Mantle. That's why I thought it was like a transfer. Of- yeah, it has that kind of feel. Yeah, definitely. And gorgeous after that, you see the person you see in the wedding dress is gorgeous. You know what, though? I think there was a scene on the staircase where it still was the ant later on, where the one late, one girl was still floating on, I don't know, a mattress or a piece of oh, That was gorgeous. That, that was gorgeous. That, that, was that was gorgeous, gorgeous walking down. Oh, and the, the okay. other, uh, what is her? That was, uh, that was one that liked the, the guy, Sweet. Was Sweet. that her Sweet. name? Yeah. I think Sweet. she was the last girl yeah. standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she like paddles up to the staircase, and and gorgeous is there. That's right. Fantasy, it might have been fancy. Well, fantasy. Yeah, but going to the aunt is the last thing we see her of like at least not in a mirror. Which was she when she was in the mirror? Was she younger? Yes, she didn't yeah. have the, she had the dark hair, hair for yeah. sure. So, the last time I remember seeing the white haired version is when she breaks the fourth wall uh, mm-hmm. and smiles at the audience. Yes. Kind of like this yeah. thing's gonna get crazy. Dancing yeah. in the rafters. Yeah. <laughs> like she goes into oh, the right, refrigerator. Right, yeah. and, mm-hmm. uh, Got some energy. Yeah. And then she's just like, yeah, she gotta... here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we can get us. Yeah. Yeah, that's the last time I think we we see the the older version. Um and then yeah, gorgeous sort of takes on the mantle uh and takes on like the anger of it as well. Right. She, you know, she she becomes the person who kind of consumes um and the last person she consumes is is umi the, the you know the woman who kind of quote unquote took her man right um so we kind of end in we, we sort of end back where we came from um except it's like kind of worse or kind of more horrifying um because it's you know it's like the dad is the <laughs> is the man she was robbed of of being able to spend time with um so it, it yeah it becomes just even slightly more bizarre regarding that like father uh daughter relationship um i think it was i don't know i, I think it might be a cultural thing because it was it's more common uh where the the daughter takes care of the father and they have a very strong bond and and that movie mm-hmm. i mean i'm sorry that relationship is explored a lot in uh ozu's films um, mm-hmm. about a aging father being taken care of by the daughter who's not getting married and trying needing to break up that thing and and that that is happening here in this movie as well so it, it's a very very common relationship breakup that happens mm-hmm. uh, and um, it was just interesting to see it even in this bonkers film mm-hmm. oh okay yeah in in those what do you mean by the them breaking up so um so basically, oh, uh, uh, you know, this is not my perspective, but what is 
common in Japan, and especially mm-hmm. in the older generation, is uh, once a woman turns 30 and she's not wed, um, she's, a, she's an old maid uh, for all intents and mm-hmm. purposes. And then they have some certain idioms and sayings that are quite, uh, quite nasty, but essentially she becomes useless to society. Um, so if a father who, let's say for whatever reason, the mother is out of the picture, the father is aging and is being taken care of by the daughter and they have a very good bond, they have a very happy relationship. The father is then pressured to marry off the woman, the, 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 the daughter to anybody because her clock is ticking as well. So it's a societal pressure that breaks them apart. That's not exactly mm-hmm. how that relationship was broken up in this movie, but because this was a, a new wife rather than the daughter going off and getting married, but it was still that relationship crumbling that pushed uh, Gorgeous uh, into a bad place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's more societal that, that breaks them apart rather than mm-hmm. any plot or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. That is interesting because it's another kind of past present tension right another yeah another kind of uh either anger at the past or like we do, they don't get it it's interesting like the girls are they just don't understand you know this this sort of history they're standing on top of um yeah and it's like the past is either something to laugh at or something to be angry at um and that the past will not stay quiet that's <laughs> it never does the more i think about it the more we talk about it, i think it's more important to the movie I'm curious to rewatch some of the early stuff. And especially we were talking about how they were laughing about the, some of the World War II stuff. I wonder mm-hmm. where Gorgeous was in all this. Was she even present? Um, mm-hmm. And if she was present, did she also mimic, um, I'm sorry, did she also make fun of it or, or make light of it? Um, because mm-hmm. I would venture to say maybe she didn't. And that's why she, well, besides being possessed, she gets kind of, Get, she gets off lightly, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she's the narrator. That's right. That's right. But she I don't know if she's laughing at right the that's the, right the tragedy. I, I kind I kind of I kind of took it as like her looking into the mirror was like putting herself in her mm-hmm. aunt's shoes. So like as a ignorant kid, she laughed about it because she had no idea. And then when she finally learned, when she walked a mile in her aunt's shoes, that's when she kind of looked down upon the people that were her friends and that now she realized that she was, she was wrong and that they were wrong too. And now she's going to punish them. That's kind of how I interpreted it. Do you think Chris, that um, the aunt picked uh, gorgeous to possess because of the family time or was there anything? Why would you pick gorgeous? I think it was just because like, a was the family tie and that gorgeous was going through something similar, like gorgeous, just going back to the whole idea of, of dad and losing dad and losing dad to somebody else was kind of like what the aunt went through with losing the husband or losing the fiance to war. And maybe that was the, her way in. I, I don't necessarily know that it was anything but happenstance either, but at the same time, it could have been like, she was the most likely suspect because she had a loss that she had just gone through. That was on a different, a different version of love. It wasn't, it was a love yeah. between a, a father and a daughter, not a love between a, a future husband and wife, but it was a loss in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I do like that. That does make sense. She was like the more susceptible because she was in that state of mind, similar mm-hmm. to the aunt. Because like, yeah. that's the, that's the whole reason that she went to this house was because of that loss. Like she was going to go somewhere else and vacation somewhere else with dad. But this, this, this wedge was driven between them. And then she gets, she basically runs into the open arms of auntie who then makes her her own. And she becomes a um, with the vampire theme that's going on there or the vampire imagery. She's also the, you know, the gorgeous one, the attractive one is also a, an attraction for future, future people to come and visit as, you know, as we see at the end too. So the, you know, that, that keeps going. And, and, and it's also interesting because you have the, um, you do have the, the, this kind of idea of uh, like trauma being passed on. Right. And I think that's that resonates more when it's when you could see the kind of genetic connection between characters. Right. Because that that's a clear present past, you know, it's, they're they're related and of different generations. And I think that also relates to the sort of maximal film style, um, which, you know, what does film do? It, it like 
captures it captures the past and it holds it and it makes it something you can't escape from and that i think that's also happening with their relationship and with this kind of vampire thing that's going on um it's it's this kind of like the trauma that doesn't die it's time for movie rent i'd be remiss if i didn't bring up the topic of the clock in the house would we like to kind of go into that a little bit because it's a little perplexing the one that grinds the girl up into liquid yeah they literally have this chiming noise that seems to be really pronounced throughout the house but they don't find the clock and then finally they find the clock and it's like gushing blood and all of that you one of the girls is in it yeah i think it's either no sweet i think it's killed by the mattresses and then is it no no it is fantasy it is sweet in the i think who gets killed by the mattresses i don't think she was killed by the mattress just like disappeared or like oh okay so it's the same yeah because it was like the impression was she got turned into a doll right Maybe. Because the mattresses fall on her, and her clothes are stripped, and they come the down to the clothes are, sh- are also well. stripped, and the cat is next to the doll. But needless um, to say, like, is the clock the heart of the house? Like, just I just, what's going on there? It seemed there was a bigger. There was supposed to be something bigger there that I was missing because it was prominent. I don't want to sound too pretentious, but like I kind of took it as like the, the gears of progression, like just progress can never be stopped. Uh... And the idea of because it was definitely the like the clock had a lot of gears inside of it. Yes. Just that those machinations never stop turning. And that if you get caught in them, you can kind of like suffer the, the consequences of them. I don't know. That's what I that's what I'm trying to pull from it. I don't know if that's what it meant or if that was just a 10 year old girl saying, oh, it'd be kind of weird if you got chewed up by a clock. <laughs> uh, and it 100 percent could be that, too. Uh, but I, I, t- I took it as like the machinations of time passing and they, you could just get eaten alive kind of buy it that's i think that's why he took down this episode right there with that kind of thinking i mean he's got this movie inside and out and he said he didn't like it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i thought way too i thought way too much about this movie honestly over the last couple mm-hmm. of days so i mean from a from a perspective of a movie kind of like changing my headspace for a time it it was definitely in that in that that realm i will say my point total does not shock me one bit <laughs> oh i have one last thing sorry not to there's something else random there. But at the end, why is the boyfriend turned into a pile of bananas? Yes, yes I want to so know this. That this is the best part of the yeah. movie. Yes. Like, why? That, that was a question, but I thought everybody would just get it right. So, yeah. <laughs> so I left it off. But why? Why amazing. is he a pile of bananas? Because no, why, no, why not? Why not? Why not? That's that's what that's the whole thing. I mean, we're we're like going into analysis here. And I think he was so close. doing is valuable. But I think the we're not getting at the spirit of it, which is why not? That's the whole that's really the point of the movie. He says is, bananas and then he yeah, turns he into a banana. I mean, remember his story. For, remember, he got stuck in a bucket and <laughs> the bucket danced around the street and almost got hit by a car. Then <laughs> on the way there, he stomped but to a noodle shop and was I am I remembering King Treasure or was a bear making the mm-hmm. noodles? Oh yeah, there was a yeah. bear there. There was a bear there, yeah. So they were some really good he... noodles though. <laughs> why, exactly, why, yeah. would he... why wouldn't he turn into bananas <laughs> at the end? It's yeah. Nothing what else, else would it makes sense. It's the most yeah. logical stuff. And I mean, I and understand the watermelon man blowing up, but mm. like yeah. I, I, I just I also love how Mr. Togo was like um he was referenced enough to make you think he was the hero coming. And he just turns into bananas. It's not even like he fails to be the hero. They subvert the, you know, um, uh, Obayashi subverts the expectation so completely. It's not only that he fails, he fails by turning into a giant pile of bananas. <laughs> because in it's the shape of be his body in the, his buggy car. And With the hat on. And the hat on. Don't forget the, the, hat. Hat. <laughs> the hat didn't turn bananas. The hat was seen. Everything yeah. else out mm-hmm. of control. Yeah. A lot of bananas. Oh, I, yeah, I love that. Um, I saw that, <laughs> and I love the. I, I had to say, I really love the effects. I think uh, this movie, with you know, even kind of basic like nineteen seventies jaw level effect, Jaws levels effect, would be not really something we would be watching today or talking about. Um, yeah, 
because it's like it's like a it's like a magic show. That's what it's like. It's a magic show. It's a guy coming up with how can I make this weird thing on the spot because I want to, you know, because I somehow tricked everybody into allowing me to make this movie. And so I'm going to have fun with the trick. I think that's the beautiful thing of the movie is that the effects look exactly how he wanted them to look. Mm -hmm. This was not bad filmmaking. This was not ran out of budget. So just put some, you know, some ridiculous Mm -hmm. things together. He knew what he was doing. He had a vision and he executed the vision. And to me, regardless of whether I like a movie, you can feel it. Like when you're watching a movie, you can feel it when a artist's vision is being shown to you uh, with, without any compromise. And I felt that in this movie. I think it's a magical thing to see. It doesn't happen very often. And, and that's why this movie has endured and will continue to endure. Yeah, it, it's funny. You read about this, story, this, this movie, um, like, you know, he didn't work for the film product. He didn't work for, for uh, uh, what's it called again? I just forgot the name, the, the production company. Um, Toho? Uh, Toho, thank you. It just went out of my head a second. Uh, he didn't work for Toho. Uh, he got it approved, but nobody wanted to direct the script because they thought <laughs> it was too silly. Um, and so what he did was he started his own like marketing campaign where he like got the album to the movie done first. Um, and then like he created a, ma- uh, a manga comic as well. Uh, and he had like a fashion show for the, the seven uh, lead female characters in it. Um, so he just went on this campaign because he didn't work for the company. So they're like a director who works for us has to make it, you can't make. And so eventually he just kind of forced his way using his marketing skills to get this done. I, I love the, and, and when it was successful, um, everybody was really mad. At, at the the production company, they were they were like furious because they're like, people are going to think Japanese movies are this and not you know something fancier or something better. Um, this shouldn't have been successful. We're upset with you. Like somebody actually told the screenwriter, like we're disappointed that this made money. <laughs> Classic. I mean, I, I, what more can this guy do? I mean, he wrote it, directed it, and he he was the marketing campaign. Yeah, I mean, he did everything. Yeah, him and uh, they, they had another. There was another screenwriter who worked, who like, I think took the ideas and made it a script. Okay. Um, but I think like a lot of it did a just script. come from, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it came from his, like you said, his daughter it was just like, I thought there was I a head it. in the well. And so, you know, um, you know, that all that, and the mattress thing all came from his daughter. The piano wow. came from his daughter um, who is in the scene where they're waiting for the bus, she is a shoeshine girl. The shoeshine scene, I forgot about that. That was awesome too. Yeah, so yeah, like that's her. Having a happy old time, just. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's her with the, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, that was the, the idea, that was the brain behind the, the film, Shining Shoes. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, Chris. There's no contention here. He, he, he definitely got it. I know Ragnar, you put up a good fight there, but. With his analytical skill and 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 eye here, um, and we we had no chance, no chance. Thank you, thank you. And I just would like it to be known for the record that it was the time where the camera got attacked that was the first (laughs) time the house attacked. Thank you very much. Thank you. It didn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) One point win. One point win. Let's just (laughs) the buzzer beater. (laughs) In addition to our website, talkingpicturestribute.com, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Would you stay in an Airbnb that was house-themed and why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. Have additional thoughts? Email us at TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future From the Listeners episodes. Thanks again, Ragnar and Chris, for joining us today. It, it is so is KJ gonna listen to all this? Of course he is. He's on KJ, we're, together. we're much happier without you here. You just you <laughs> don't don't show your face. We don't want to hear your voice anymore. <laughs> KJ, I would just like to let you know that I miss you and I would like you to come back, but I would like you to also bring me back on episodes. <laughs> you know, that way we can continue our banter with uh, with with kind with kind responses. <laughs> KJ does not deserve kindness. 
Um, mm. Yeah, stay away, KJ. No, I'm but keep recommending movies. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I had a blast with this. Keep recommending movies, KJ. I keep, I keep all, I keep enjoying the movies you. I can't so multitask much. these type of movies. Mm-hmm. They take uh, way too much attention. If it could be silent next time, just, just to <laughs> irritate Nick that oh much more. Gosh. Yeah, and and make sure that the intertitles are in kanji. So yeah. <laughs> In all seriousness, thanks again for having me, guys. This was awesome. I appreciate it. Nah, it's great to have you on, even if you win. You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15 and check out our sister podcast, uh, Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nickname. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's recommendation, which is my recommendation, from Korea in 2019 Parasite. I attempted to pick a KJ pick in his absence. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Ding, 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 ding. So the first time I saw Parasite was in theaters. Uh, The movie was receiving a lot of hype and um, it kind of of made me, I don't know, negative about it because, you know, when movies get overhyped. So I went, I saw it in theaters when it hit New Orleans. And I got to say, even though it received a ton of hype, um, I believe it was underhyped, and I think it was a perfect choice to to win the the best picture, the first foreign film to win best picture at the Oscars. This is my first time seeing this movie uh, for this podcast. I didn't see it when it first came out, and I had forgotten that it had won an Oscar or Oscars or or Grammys or Emmys or whatever these things win nowadays. Um, I, I I had a somewhat sh- strong negative response to the film um i after about 40 minutes i kind of figured what they were doing and i then found the the sort of genre a little confusing it seemed to at some points go towards farce and at other times go towards something quite different i don't think it was in the end farcical um so i i found the the ideas behind the movie uh, familiar. I kind of figured it out what they were trying to do pretty quickly on, and then I, I found myself kind of frustrated for the 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 latter hour twenty or or whatever was left after the first forty minutes. So, yeah, I guess I had a different <laughs> response than you, Ragnar. Um, but but that's all right. I mean, I'm glad I watched it that looks like a lovely piece of property that was the the set piece for the film and um, I I might not be revisiting it for me with Parasite the the first time I saw it I was uh, I was impressed uh, impressed in the sense of um, this this was one of one of my so I went through a watching a lot of Korean movies uh, when I was probably about what maybe 10 15 years ago and I felt like this one was up there with, uh, I think it was, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy who did, the director who did um, Old Boy, the Old Boy, or part of the Old Boy trilogy. But with Parasite, I think it was how it layered in, you know, I think that for anybody who's seen it, the, the real thing is like the, the class warfare or looking at the kind of the socioeconomic standings of two families and what, and how both of them relate to each other, feed off of each other, how they're similar, dissimilar. Uh, but on top of that, it was the a lot of the contrast and the imagery and the scene setups and the the music. You know, a lot of operatic tones that really highlighted or brought um, certain things from scenes. You know, kind of to the forefront. So it wasn't just like the the acting or the the concepts in the movie. It was also how a lot of things were brought to the the audiences. So for me as an audience, was brought to my attention and how they use a lot of things um, that were either in the background to show contrast, um, as well as comparison that I, I really enjoyed with, uh, with Parasite. Like Tom, this was also my first watch of the film, and I was much, very much looking forward to watching this. I made sure to not have any spoilers or really understand the plot or anything, even with all the hype that surrounded it. So it's been a while since it's been out in 2019. And I, I've stayed in my little bubble. So I was really looking forward to watching this one. And just like Ragnar said, I was, I'm always concerned when there is so much hype 
And I do fall into the camp that I think the hype was well-deserved. What Tom might've struggled with, I actually embrace the fact that it kind of morphs from different genres. And usually I am pretty good at predicting what is going to happen in a film, but this one uh, changed drastically from one genre to another and even to another after that. So I could understand why it could be challenging if someone was trying to peg it into one specific box because it really was a, a few different types all kind of commingled into one. And I think he did a really good job with it. But again, we'll get more into that in the episode, but I'm very glad that I had a watch. And I actually do want to rewatch this uh, possibly with my wife. She wasn't able to watch it with me. So we'll see if uh, how I feel after a second watch. Uh, uh, here's an art movement to look at if you like the look of this movie. I, I was looking into this post-expressionism um, and it was actually David Lynch is actually painted in this style uh, when he make when he paints work. What should I look at if I don't want to find something in this style? <laughs> uh, I, I guess, uh, Nick, for you, futurism. That's, that's futurism. what I'm going to give you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it was a, uh, a big inspiration to the Italian fascist, but um, the, the neo-expressionism <laughs> was this like 70s, a really interesting 70s art, um, which was accused, and this this is also part of it, for being too marketable. Like it's sold too well and people are angry at it. And so there's this whole kind of like marketing thing that also factors into it. Um, but it's really like, it's like American and British and actually a little bit Iranian, I think. Um, like Philip Guston, um, uh, Betty Goodwin, people who's uh, she was Canadian or she was American, but it's something to look at because it looks like this movie. There's a lot of like overlap of odd shaped objects. Um, yeah, it's it's. I don't know if it's the greatest artwork in the world, but it it makes you think of this picture. 